0: This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today. The Big Interview. Intriguing lives, remarkable careers and gripping stories. I'm Sonal Rupani alongside Chris McCarty and Robbie Greenfield. It's an incredible story for all the wrong reasons it, it's rooted in tragedy it's the story of a man by the name of Brendan McDonough we're going to hear extensively from him Brendan is well by his own admission he is someone from the kind of wrong side in a lot of ways he admitted that the, the wrong side of the track should I say at a young age he admitted by his own admission he was a bit of a, a lost youth he was someone that was uh, abusing substances at the age of 13. Would you believe? And and he was on a a kind of path to to self-destruction really. It was his mother who forced him into the fire explorers which apparently, certainly I didn't have it in the northeast of Scotland, but they're essentially a group that uh, you learn how to tie knots and how to throw ladders, and essentially it's a youth group. And he took part in that at a young age, and that gave him a love for the fire service, and it was actually the fire service that gave him an escape from a life that he didn't want to be in. It was a life that he admitted that was taking him, as I say, down a path that he didn't want to be on, and ultimately it would be a path that would lead him to redemption in a lot of ways, but equally, great tragedy at the end of it. He was a member of the Granite Mountain Hot Shots. For anyone out there that isn't aware, I certainly wasn't. Hot Shots, what are they? Essentially, they are firefighters who deal primarily with wild fires. They're not, they're not structural building, buildings. Yeah. No, they're not structural. Uh, they're, these are guys who you know, are, uh, get physical, are, are the guys that will head into dense woodland areas that will climb mountains to put out these fires that, that can cause... So much havoc in certain places across the US. He, he did tell me that, you know, joining the Granite Mountain uh, Hotshots was for him a last chance to turn his life around. That was back in 2011. Now, he is just 21 when we fast forward to June 30th, 2013. He's 21 years of age. He's into his third season as a member of the Granite Mountain Hotshots. That was a crew of 20 men who would. When called upon, go and fight wildfires.
1: We're going through our, our fire season. We had been on a fire or two already, and we're home and we're on severity, so they're they're kind of holding us back to just just because there's a high likely chance of a local fire. And you know, we're told we get a call the night before, "Hey, show up at the the station early in the morning. We're gonna be you know we're gonna be going down to a fire." And potentially and so we show up at the station that morning, we get the go ahead that we got called to this fire in Yarnell. And it's a relatively small fire. They've had a helicopter on it for the last few days, kinda watching it, keeping it in check. And, you know, a lot of times with these fires, if there's no immediate risk, they'll let it burn because that's what the forest needs to do naturally. And so we're driving down and you know, it's about an hour and a half drive from Prescott and we're just getting prepped and you know usually I get in you know about a half hour nap I try to because you don't know when you're how long you're going to be working how long you're going to be going you could be doing a 24 or 36 hour shift straight fighting fire and so you know I'm hydrating up eating we're in the back of the buggies chatting and we're starting to get information about this fire and I'm thinking man this fires you know pretty relatively small and hasn't been doing too much over the last you know over the last week or so that it's been going on and I think, you know, hopefully in the next few days, we'll get a good handle on it, and be a good resource. And so we get there and we get our information and we get our job and that's to secure the anchor point of the fire. And that's the starting point of the fire. And you always work off the anchor. You've got to start there. And so we we get to hiking in and I'm, I'm hiking in. And I know a few of us are thinking it's, it's kind of humid and sweating quite a bit. and so you know, usually when we hike in, we we hike straight to the top and then we take a water break. But about halfway through, we took a water break. And at that point in time, I knew it was going to be hot. It was going to be a hot day today and we're going to put in some hard work. And that, you know, at this point in time, I'm physically in good shape. And, you know, I've, I've been on the crew for, this is my third season going on. And so, you know, I'm prepared. I've been on fires like this. And we get to the top and we start plugging in line. And, you know, at that point in time, we need to put a lookout in place. And so my soup and captain call me over and they say, hey, Donut, you know, do you want to be the lookout today? We think you'd be a good fit. Um, where are you thinking about going? You know, we're thinking over here. And so we come up with a location and and I start getting to hike in and a, another superintendent drives up and he's talking with my superintendent about kind of what the plan is. And, you know, he offers to give me a ride down the hill. I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? And so, you know, I say bye to the crew, and on my way I go, and I'm getting down to my lookout position. And this superintendent drops me off, and he says, "Hey, I'm going to be down here. If you need anything, call me on the radio." We're going to be cut in line. We're going, and the crew, they're they're buttoning up this anchor point, and you know, they're getting it solid. And the fire activity is starting to pick up a little bit, but nothing nothing too crazy. It's still kind of mid morning.
0: The voice there of Brendan McDonough. Now, just to recap, he is part of a 20-man crew. It's arrived to battle a wildfire 90 miles northwest of Phoenix. The day before this particular fire, Brendan had actually been feeling a little ill. Now, his captain, second-in-command that day, a man by the name of Jesse Steed, he'd actually sent him home, said, listen, you're not feeling too well, head on home. On this particular day, on June 30th, 2013, the the next day, at that fire... Brendan was asked to be lookout. Now, he was being asked to be lookout. He doesn't know this for certain, but he thinks in the back of Jesse's mind it was because he was ill the day before. Now, lookout, I'm not saying for one second it's any less physical, still a very important job. Of course, it's staying in one spot, it's observing the fire, it's taking weather observations, it's updating the rest of the crew on the status of the fire and where it was in relation to their location. So, it's a very important job, but it's very important for the context of this story. It was Jesse that said to Brendan, you're going to be look out. Now, we have heard from Brendan already that, as I say, the fire was behaving at this point. That was the word he used. It's behaving as they suspected it would. It's over to Brendan now to pick up the story.
1: And so it's about afternoon time, um, taking lunch, we're eating lunch, the crew's up there, they're working, working along and, you know, they're working with helicopters and the fire behaviour on the north end of the fire, granted we're on the south end of the fire, starts picking up. And so they get, you know, some of the aircraft is starting to get utilized on the north end of the fire. And it's continuously pushing away from us, this fire is. So it's moving in a good direction. We're in a good spot. And that afternoon, mid-evening, there comes a call over the radio for the for a weather event. And this weather event is supposed to come in. And it's supposed to bring heavy winds, potential of rain and lightning, And it's going to turn this fire around. So it's going to completely shift the wind pattern of this fire. And they're telling us, you know, we'll keep you updated so we get a second update on this event. And they've had some more hard times. And they say this fire should reach, you know, the north end of town by within an hour. And so at this point in time, fire activity is picking up. You know, they're planning to do some evacuations and they start evacuating and the crews up on top of the hill kind of watching this happen. And this fire started turning like a clock. So let's say it's, you know, the fire's moving towards 12 o'clock. It just started going one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock. And as it starts turning, my spot that I was at as a lookout becomes compromised. And so I call up to my soup and my captain and say, hey, it's time for me to get out of here. You know, they're like, hey, we agree. We've got eyes on you. We're watching you. And so as I'm getting out of there, this fire intensity is starting to pick up quite a bit. And, you know, I'm feeling pretty confident, but I'm a little nervous um, as anyone should be. And as soon as I hit the road, I see that the fire is starting to cut off the road my way out. And so either I can go out back into town where our vehicle's at and hop in a vehicle and get out, or I can hike back up to the hill to the crew. And as soon as I'm thinking, hey, I'm going to call for the radio to get help from that superintendent previously. And as soon as I go to hit the radio, he comes pulling up around the corner on a UTV is like, hey, hop in. The fire's making a shift. We got to move your vehicles. And so I hop in, he's like, hey, do you want to update your soup? And I said, why don't you update him? You know, you got more of a game plan going on than I do. You know, guy's been in it for, you know, 15 years plus, and I'm a third year seasonal. He's going to have a better breakdown of what's going on. And so he communicates with my soup. He goes, hey, we've got donut. We're going to grab your vehicles, move them into town, and we'll meet up with you there. So at that point in time, my crew starts going down their escape route and headed to their safety zone to get back in town. There's a radio communication, hey, Granite Mountain, can you guys get back into town? So they start moving down that. And this fire at this point in time has, you know, gone from moving at 12 o'clock to three o'clock, and three o'clock is towards the town. And as they're moving down there, we're, I'm with another crew and we're headed north to try and cut this fire off from, from burning homes. And during, during this, it starts to, you know, starts to become a little chaotic. They're still evacuating people, making sure everyone's out within a, you know, 10, 15 minute time frame. we start losing homes. And my crew's moving down their escape route to their safety zone. And, you know, this is all being communicated over the radio. We pull out of the north end of the fire when I'm with this other crew and we go into town And everyone essentially is being pulled off this fire because we're starting to lose homes. This fire has now completely done its 180 and it's
0: done it in a rapid amount of time. In short, this fire is essentially out of control. They have lost control of it. The weather forecast has come in. There's been thunderstorm, there's been lightning, the winds have picked up. They have lost control. The fire has done a 180. It's heading for town. It's at this point that the situation really does escalate. And I should warn you that um, some listeners may well find this next excerpt a little distressing. What was said to have been an hour turned in
1: to the whole, you know, town essentially being burned within 15 to 20 minutes. And as my crew was descending down to their safety zone, you know, they were a few hundred yards, quarter mile off from their safety zone. This fire just picked up with such intensity. Um that, you know, someone had said, this isn't my words, but I I couldn't think of a better way to describe it. It it skipped with the wind. You know, it was like a, a rock being skipped across a puddle. It just jumped ahead of itself and just moved with, you know, an intensity that is not seen often. And as my crew was getting down, down the mountain, and they were, you know, very close to their safety zone, the fire had cut them off and they started deploying a fire, their fire shelters and they come over the radio and they're trying to get, uh, you know, air traffic in there to dump some water. They're, you know, prepping their deployment zone. And all I can hear in the background is chainsaws. Hear, hear my soups voice Hear Another crew member calling in for aircraft. And I'm sitting there watching this community get burned down and I'm, I'm at a loss for words. And I'm thinking, you know, remember my training, this is what these fire shelters are for. They're getting a deployment site set up, you know, they're, they're doing everything they're supposed to be doing. And so we start getting medical supplies ready for a burnover, And we're trying to find a way into them. You know, at this point in time, all personnel minus my crew have been pulled off the fire. And so now the the, The gears have switched from, hey, we're, you know, we're taking an offensive to defensive, but not only do we have a burnover and that's the highest priority. So we have to put our resources towards that. And that's, you know, decisions that are made way over my head and we're getting medical supplies ready and they're trying to get in to where the guys are at but they're running into it's just too heavy of a fire activity, you know, they've got 30, 40, 50, 60 foot flame lengths. They're losing homes. There's power poles that are crossed over streets and they're they're finding it really difficult and you know when my when my soup had said they're deploying their fire shelters, that was that was the last communication we had. And I'm just sitting there, you know, trying to be proactive, but this is all starting to sink in. And um, they get a helicopter up and they're starting to look for them in the area that I told them they should be in. And they finally find them and the fire is moving through town and it's kind of, you know, moving past them at this point in time. And it, they've been burned over at this point. And so they're in their fire shelters and the helicopter's looking for them. He spots them. They put the helicopter down and the, the medic starts walking up. And I can't see any of this. We're you know quite a ways off um, from from where they deployed, and I'm just waiting for the radio to go, you know to say, hey, we need you know, we need you guys to get in here. And we're still trying to get in, and they finally kind of found a way in there. And um, he goes over the radio and he says, hey, I've got 19 confirmed, and I'm sitting there thinking to myself. I told you guys there was nineteen of them. I told you what tools they had, you know, everything. And it just hit me. Like he's talking about their debt. And uh, at that moment I, I just started breaking down. I just started, you know, uncontrollably crying and shaking and my entire crew just got burned over. And it's just me. And I, you know, I've worked with this crew that I was with for half the day, a few times previously, but I didn't know them. You know, I knew a few of their names, but I, you know, it's not like I went to high school with them. It's not like, you know, we were in the same city and and they're, you know, they're, they're embracing me and they're emotional. Everyone's emotional. And,
0: you know, it, it just broke me. His 19 comrades actually perished on that hill that day. Tragic, so it was. His superintendent, a man who he told me was like a father figure to Brendan, Eric Marsh, he passed away on that hill. 19 in total. Kevin Wojcik and Grant McKee, they were the youngest victims. They were just 21 years of age. They were the same age as Brendan was. Brendan was spared. Why? Well, he admitted he was just fortunate enough to be asked to be lookout that day. That put him in a different part of the mountain. And from there, of course, that vantage point, you heard in his own words how he managed to escape the fire. His 19 comrades, his peers, weren't so lucky. Now, it was the greatest loss of firefighters in the US, in actual fact, since the 9 11 attacks in 2001, it was the greatest loss of life for firefighters in a wildfire. you got to go all the way back to 1933 and the Griffin Park fire. Now, I appreciate it's a bit of a difficult listen. I appreciate that, but take a little listen to this because this is just a little clip of the last radio transmission from the Granite Mountain hotshots before they were entrapped and engulfed by fire. What we can't that valley and the smoke where it's kind of tough on us, but we're, we'll get the shot. Hold. Oh. Three operations on air ground. We are preparing a deployment site and we are burning out around ourselves in the brush. And I'll give you a call when we are under the, sh- the shelters. So, listening to that there, for those of you, and I appreciate I wasn't, I I wasn't someone au okay fait with the terms and terminology of mm-hmm. this. They, a deployment site, the fire shelters, essentially the way that Brendan described those, like tents, they were to, they're were made to withstand great heat. And this particular, though, the heat grew too much. So there you hear, and I think that's the voice of Eric Marsh, the superintendent, saying, we've got our deployment, we're going to get under the fire shelters, and we're going to see this out. Unfortunately, the fire was, was too strong. Mm. Uh, and those 19 men perished on that day now I'll let Brendan pick up the story because here he is recounting the immediate aftermath again it's a tough listen
1: at that at that point in time after they had passed we're you know getting into the evening and you know they're they're getting in there to do the the body recovery and at that point in time I'd seen my chief he was on the fire we had connected um and he's got you know he's within the management of the, of the fire. So he's got a million things going on and he's taking this in emotionally. And I start, you know, some familiar faces I start seeing. And I, at that point in time, they, uh, they were getting the families together. You know, the news had got out that there'd been this tragedy. Um, no names were listed. They couldn't, you know, they didn't know who, but that this tragedy had happened and they're getting the families together back in Prescott at the middle school. And I went to the fire camp, um, to kind of get debriefed. And I seen a gentleman who actually helped me get into fire, Tony, Tony Shaka, and, uh, he just gave me a big hug and I was just crying and he knew my mom, uh, cause my mom had previously worked for the forest service. And he's like, Hey, you know, why don't you go home tonight? If you need anything, let us know. I know they're getting together at the middle school. And so one of the chiefs from Prescott Fire Department, was, he was already on his way, um, captains I mean. And so he said, hey, I'll, I'll take you back. And so we, we drove back for about an hour and a half. And at that point in time, my body just starts going into shock. I'm quiet, not saying much. He's, he's trying to check in with me. I'm being, you know, a little standoffish. And, you know, I'm just sitting there thinking, like, it's going to be okay. Like, I'll be okay. You know, I just keep telling myself that because that's all I want it to be. It's just okay, and it's and it's not. And uh, he's like, "Hey, I'm gonna drop you off at home." You know, I had to go to the school and be there for the family, so I'm like, "You gotta take me to school." And on the way up, I'm calling other crew members that were previously on the crew that were mentors, and they, you know, they've got word of what's going on and what happened you know, super emotional phone calls and they're like, Hey, we're going to be at the high school or the middle school. And so I told them I'll, I'll be there. And, uh, we pull up and there's, you know, police, fire trucks. I mean, there's families, there's cars. It is just, it's a lot. And, uh, I remember we parked and there was just probably like 30 to 50 people out front kind of, guarding the school from the media. And I remember, you know, getting out of the car and walking up and I, I seen, you know, the captain that put me through my academy, you know, and it gives me a hug and I break down and then I see the guys who had been on the crew previously, you know, just embrace me and we just start crying and crying and crying and you know the families are inside and i don't know what they know at this point in time and so we're you know me and a few of the guys that used to be on the crew previously we you know we're walking into the to the auditorium and i remember seeing the look of these families
0: and it was at that point and actually brendan broke down a little when he recalled seeing the faces of the families, he admitted that he couldn't stay long. He ran out, he broke down outside because, of course, this is all real. This is two hours, two and a half hours. You know, having, having gone through that, having lived through that, being the sole survivor of your crew to then making that journey back to seeing those families awaiting news for it to be confirmed that their loved ones had perished on that mountain, so difficult for Brendan. And he admitted that by his own admission, the year of hell that he went through, he slipped into depression. Mm. He said he was numb, he was devoid of any emotion. And he said it was actually a stranger. He was in a bar, he was one night, his life, he had a daughter, all of those things, all of the good things in his life, he had parked, he was focusing on the negative. And I don't want to sit here and say I can even begin to try and put myself in his shoes. It was a year of, of torture, mental torture. And it was a stranger in actual fact. He got talking to in a bar one evening and she was saying to him, open up, you've got to open up. And, and he did. And he said he spent about four hours telling this total stranger his story about what he'd gone through. She said, I can help you. She put, her, uh, put uh, Brendan in touch with a counsellor and the counsellor began to break down the barriers that over the course of the year, and he admitted to Brendan there were so many memorials, there were the funerals, there were tributes, that all of this just added to his own yeah. personal anguish. So I wanted to find out, and it was a deeply personal question, about that emotional toll. And I appreciate this might be a, a strange question to ask, but I did ask Brendan, was there guilt... Was there guilt that he was the only survivor of that 20-man crew?
1: There was a lot of survivor's guilt. You know, I'd, I'd be lying if I didn't say so. And part of that was just living in such close proximity to where this tragedy had happened, you know, and being home. And the biggest piece was probably when, you know, the my brother's kids started going back to school and their, their dad wasn't there for that first day. And there I was taking my daughter to school. And for years it was really hard and difficult for me to celebrate any sort of holiday or birthday, including my own and my children's, um, just because I felt, I felt guilty. Or having the opportunity to, to be there for them, and I didn't feel deserving of that, and that ate me alive. Every time I seen you know one of the widows with with their kids, just knowing that their father wasn't there, and it wasn't until I started getting help and I started seeing some of the wives, you know, move move forward in their you know, we talk about PTSD and we also you know have post traumatic growth. And just kind of moving forward with relationships and, and now many of them being married, if not all, and, you know, having more children. And that that really helped me personally just see them kind of, you know, work through it. And not that it makes it any easier or, you know, that their their new husband is replacing anybody, but just for them to find happiness. That's all I ever wanted for them. And it just it helped tremendously to see that. And, you know, there was there was a lot of guilt there that I had to work through about still being here and still having an opportunity to be a father and, and to live and to the flip side of, you know, wasting a lot of time, uh, not getting help and dealing with the alcohol issue. And, you know, I, I, hindsight's 2020, right? And I, I wish I would have got help sooner, but I'm, I'm glad that I'm at where I'm at today you know and I, I truly believe god's got a plan for each individual on this earth and that was that was a part of my plan is that you know he was going to walk me through that and until i was willing to get help you know i, I couldn't change
0: you can understand why he felt it yeah but it's not it, it's not rational It isn't. It's not his fault. Of course it isn't. But equally, I I can understand. Uh, Again, I I can empathise with that. I say understand, I've never lived it myself. I haven't been in his shoes, but I, I can completely understand that. That there's, a, he called them his brothers there was a close mm. bond there a lot of these guys he went to high school with it was of course made into a film three years ago and it is entitled Only the Brave now when you look at the cast for this movie it is quite astonishing Josh Broleen Jeff Bridges Miles Taylor Andy McDowell and of course Jennifer Connelly I mean that is a heck of a cast but I wanted and we finish here and I want to give the final word to Brendan now on watching that film he played a role in its creation he sat with the director he sat with the writer to give his first-hand account of what went on because, of course, he was the lone survivor. And I wanted to find out what the film really meant to him.
1: I flew out to Los Angeles and um, it was in one of their showing theatres. So it seats, you know, 30 people or so, something like that. And I was with the producer, Mike Mitchell, and he's, you know, he's like, hey, if you want me in there, I'll be in there. If you don't, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I wish you can't see the expression on my face, but, you know, I'm getting emotional even talking about it. And uh, I found myself laughing at certain moments. I found myself, you know, in joy. And obviously with the ending, I just I just had a, a breakdown of the magnitude of, you know, what that impact had on myself and so many family members and. You know, in closing, I just sat there for a good 15, 20 minutes and really just processed through the emotions of that film as I knew there would be more times to come to, to watch that. And I'm a, I'm a yes man. And so, it, you know, there was opportunities with my small group back at home. You know, they'd say, hey, we're going to go watch it if you'd like, you know, feel free to come with us. If not, we completely understand. But, you know, it's just it's such an intimate film that, you know, I was able to share, you know, a part of my emotion with others that have not only known those men, but loved those men and, and knew them in a different realm. But people that have never met them that, that walked away with just a just an impact of what they had sacrificed and it was uh yeah I was very emotional very emotional and I've watched it you know a handful of times since then I probably I haven't watched it in a few years um I know it'll pop up on the the television and uh you know it's something that I've that I've processed enough and you know I lived it I don't I don't need to watch it anymore and I'm sure there'll probably come a point in time when you know uh my kids you know, my kids will my kids will ask, "Hey, Dad, you know, we know this movie was made. You know, can we watch this?" And I don't know what that'll be like, but I know where I'm at today and where God's taking me. And you know, I don't look forward to it, but I know that I'll be prepared, and that my children are going to understand that their dad is here today because of their sacrifice and all the hard work they put in to helping me become the man I am today.
0: The voice of Brendan McDonough, and I should point out as well, he never did return to fighting fires. He told me that he did try. He admitted to not having the mental fortitude. And as he put it rather poignantly, he didn't have a crew to go back to Mm. and he got emotional at that point as well he has now turned to helping others in the services who are battling substance addiction he's making sure that the men and women who have fallen on hard times have an opportunity to get clean to get themselves back on the streets and narrow that is where his life work is at and of course bringing up his beautiful daughters as well i cannot thank brendan enough Thank you for listening, and if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you could subscribe, rate, and give us a review. This podcast was presented by Chris McCarty, Sonal Rupani, and Robbie Greenfield, and produced by Tom Paul Smith. We hope you join us next time on The Big Interview.